Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enzelicht. Mickey, how are you today? I'm doing very, very well. It's, uh, it has not been a long day, but it's been a day that's so humid and hot that I have been so looking forward to this beer, which I have not, you know, I, I haven't, did not drink anything yet, so I'm looking forward to the beer. Uh, and of course, our very special guest. That's right. We have a special guest joining us today. Uh, our special guest is Rachel Rattan. She is an assistant professor at the Rotman School here. Uh, her PhD is in management and organizations from Northwestern. So Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to be here and drink some beers. So what are we drinking, Mickey? Well, so I think, you well, you and I are drinking certainly the same uh, brewer. I'm not sure we picked the exact same beer. So I've got in front of me uh, a cranberry hibiscus ale, uh, which is from Barnstor- Barnstormer Brewing and Distilling Company from Barrie, Ontario. And uh, wh- which one are you drinking, UL? I'm drinking the Cascade Smash. I had the hibiscus ale uh, Tuesday, actually, and it's, um, it's quite good. So you're in for a treat. Yeah. So um, do you do we want to thank the listener who brought us this delicious beer? Absolutely, because it's a great backstory. So we had um, a random listener, uh, not someone we know from, you know, not one of our students, uh, not someone in, in the psychology world, but uh, actually a pharmacist who uh, is a loyal listener and uh, lives in, I guess, outside of Barrie, Ontario. His name is Mavni Alavi. And he emailed the the two of us a few weeks ago and said, listen, I want to, you know, it's pandemic time. I want to support uh, my local brewery. And why don't I buy you guys some beers? And we're like, sure, absolutely. We're always open for, for beer. Um, and I thought, you know, there's been a, quite a few people who've promised us beer and, and, you know, lots of promises, very, very few delivered. <laughs> but, uh, you know, then one morning he kind of emails the two of us saying, hey, I'm going to be in Toronto uh, I'm going to drop it off. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I gave him I gave a random person on the Internet my home address. Uh, and I had a couple of moments there where I'm like, this guy could be out to kill me and Yoel. Maybe he hates us. Uh, did you have that fear at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, we we have many enemies and uh, most of them do seem the type to to try to murder us. So I have to say this was very unwise. But. Luckily, evidently, he was a very nice dude and did not try to kill you. Also, to be f- to be fair, he didn't have your address. So <laughs> that's, seems... that's right. Maybe he did want to kill me. He's yeah. like, Mickey's cool. Yeah. But if I see you well, I will murder yeah. him. Yeah, we don't know for sure. Right. So here I was thinking, like, I, you know, I'm just going to get all the beer. But Yoel was withholding from giving the address because he was wiser than I. He's like, yeah, this guy could be an axe murderer. So I'm not going to give some random guy my 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 address. Um. Anyways, uh, Mavni was was uh, quite a gentleman. He came with his wife and delivered the beer. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much, Mavni. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's really above and beyond. And uh, I'm going to open mine on air here. Oh, crap. I got it all over myself. Well, that's not Mavni's fault. Thank you so much. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Um, so, Rachel, uh, what are you drinking and which stranger gave you your beer? So I've really been taking advantage of the local breweries here offering free delivery during quarantine, which has been a great way to try a lot of different local places. And tonight I'm having Broken Point from Kensington Brewing Company. It's a New England pale ale and it's uh, going down pretty smooth so far. 
So one of the main reasons that I was excited to have you come on um, is that you uh, have training in and, and work in a, a field that's sort of like social psych, but is also different in a lot of ways that I think are interesting. Um, and that's organizational behavior. Um, and one of the things that we'd like to do is have people on the show who are kind of in sort of different areas around like the study of human behavior, um, who maybe have different perspectives, different backgrounds in how they think about things. Um, and so that's part of the reason that I was excited to have you on so you could tell us about some of that stuff. And I thought maybe you could start by just telling our listeners what organizational behavior actually is and how it's different from, for example, social psych. Yeah, absolutely. So Broadly speaking, organizational behavior has to do with the behavior of people and groups within organizations. Um, if I speak about the field of management more broadly, there's also a, f a field of organizational theory, and that's more macro, and that has to do with how organizations interact with their institutional environments. So it's a field, yes, it really has to do with behavior, but it, it crosses levels of analysis. Um, in terms of speaking to the differences between these differences, I want to say a few caveats before we begin. One is that, yes, my PhD is in management and organizations, but I was trained by psychologists. So I'm in a way a, an insider and an outsider to both worlds where I find that OB people call me a social psychologist and social psychologists call me an OB person. So I guess nobody wants to claim me and that's fine. <laughs> but that's a common theme here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really uh, d diving into some deep psychological issues here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. So I, I yeah, it, I like it for many reasons, which I'll dig into. But yeah, so trained in a lot of ways as a traditional social psychologist, but also um, very much raised in this interdisciplinary department. Um, second caveat is that when I speak about this, I'm going to paint pretty uh, with a pretty broad brush. So when I'm talking about both OB and social psychology, it's certainly not going to be characteristic of all of it. These are all generalizations. Um, so again, won't, won't cover every type of research. Um, the third, this is a very triggering question for me. Um, to give an example, I was on, um, I was at a job talk and this is at one of these schools that's technically an OB department, but has hired, uh, all psychologists essentially. And one of the first questions I was asked was this one, where is, is OB any different from social psychology? And my answer is yes. And I just kept persisting in that answer of yes. And this person just, and no matter what I said, he would just say, no, it's not. <laughs> so it's basically like 30 minutes of me presenting my case and him just saying no. <laughs> the most frustrating part, what I, I would bring up research that I thought was emblematic of the differences. So for me, one of the core differences is this real sensitivity to crossing levels of analysis. So starting with the individual all the way up to the organizational level of analysis and what happens in between. And I think there are a lot of really insight, interesting insights that can get unpacked there. Um, so for instance, take the work uh, of the Carnegie School, which is the behavioral uh, theory of the firm. So something like this would involve, have you, are you familiar with the garbage can model of decision making? Definitely not. Okay. So it's, it's great. So it's, it's the, this theoretical model that came out that describes how, well, organizations, they constantly, they have these very complicated problems. They're in these often very volatile external environments. People are coming and going. So there's kind of an organized sense of anarchy within each of them. So what organizational decision making looks like is a garbage can where problems go in and solutions go in. 
they mix up in there and, and they find each other, but not necessarily in a way that makes sense. So I actually think that the field of psychology is a nice parallel where there are questions there are different methods. There are different ways of analyzing results. And sometimes because there's no real coherent thread, there are loose assortments of ideas. Those might get glommed together in a way that doesn't totally make sense. So maybe a question is matched with a method that doesn't make complete sense. And 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 that's, that's a key part of the garbage can model. And I, I think that's a really great case for why I think these interdisciplinary departments are super interesting. Then, in the middle of this interview, this person was like, I don't know what that work is, but you're still wrong. <laughs> and that was... <laughs> this guy sounds like, a, sounds like an asshole. I'm assuming it's a guy. It was. Um, can, can I just ask one clarification yeah. question on this garbage can model? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are... I mean, from what you've described so far, it just sounds like it's um, you know a, a mixture of things uh, that go into a, a, a vessel of some kind. But... I mean, isn't it a chutzpah, like to call it a garbage can model? I mean, yeah, I think psychology is also a garbage can model, but for entirely different reasons. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a label, but it's just a way of really capturing how when you get a bunch of people together with unclear goals and differing um, motives, that's a big part of it. I'm simplifying it. There's a lot that goes into this theory that it just it gets very complicated very quickly. And as a result of all this, these complexities and different levels of analysis and different goals, it's just... It's just a, a giant clusterfuck, essentially. But I, I think it sheds light on why it's important to attend to not just the individual, but also the systems that they're embedded in. They really create these complications. But I agree. It's a it's a catchy term for the theory. <laughs> and I think very vivid. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, can I ask what, uh, you know, so that sounds like, you know, that alone sounds interesting, right? The uh, mixing of levels of analyses and, and being kind of... Um, Making sure to be respectful of the of, of the different levels, and and you can't just assume that what happened at one level happened at a second level or a third level, et cetera. Um, and maybe we don't do as good of a job in that in, in, in psychology. Um, can I ask what were some of the objections uh, from your uh, your your male <laughs> yeah. aggressive interlocutor? Yeah, um, basically his stance was that social psychology does this with intergroups research, and I don't think so because I think. A group is inherently small, and you're still dealing with the level of, especially in most groups' research in psychology, it's about how do we interact with each other and how does this affect our own cognition, not how is this like kind of perpetuating back out to the level of something as big as an organization or an institutional system. So, but it, it, it didn't, didn't pan out. But Did you get yeah. the job? I did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so I learned an important uh, lesson about appeasing hierarchies so <laughs> and not being so disagreeable in interviews, but that's fine. Related as you, as you nod to, it's inherently interdisciplinary. Um, I think that's great, especially in departments that respect that. But you can get some weird political siloing that happens, especially around hi hiring where, uh, I don't know, it's it's regular human nature, right? If I'm a psychologist, I want more people like me hired. If I'm a sociologist, I want more people like me hired. So in theory, it's great, but it can lead to some subgroup fac factions that can emerge in departments. But I think at places that really do it well, it's amazing. And it's it's this cool way to not silo ourselves off. Um, the other couple of things. One is that I think and I found this helpful in thinking about my own research is that people in OB think of what a theoretical contribution is quite differently from how psych typically thinks of it. 
Um, and this, there's a real aversion in OB to what what they call gap filling research. So, something like, uh, I, if I'm wearing a red shirt, am I more aggressive? That's kind of a, a flippant example, and I hope that's not a real psych study that exists. But I'm sure <laughs> it might be. I've published several <laughs> yeah. papers on that. Yeah, thanks. But the OB perspective will be like, okay, so there's a gap. It doesn't mean that it makes sense to fill it. And instead, it, you start with theory, and then there are a couple of ways to make a contribution. One is consensus building. So this is the idea of maybe we're in this field where, say, everybody has a different opinion on what, say, authenticity means. And so a contribution would be a paper that maybe brings these different perspectives together and sheds light on what that means. There's also consensus um, there's consensus destructing. So this idea like, okay, we've been wrong this whole time. Here's a new perspective. And consensus shifting. So take some big theory. You've now poked a big hole in it um, and tell us why and what that means for how we think about a given problem. Um, so so I think, again, the difference here is rather than starting with a question it often or this ad hoc application of a theory or citations to questions, it really a contribution is inherently embedded in existing theory. It sounds like it's just less driven by the effects. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's been funny. I've been trying, so again, trained more by psychologists. This is something I've been trying to adjust to myself, where just the way to my publication experience has been largely in disciplinary outlets. So learning to write for management outlets has been super novel to me. Um, where where sometimes it, we're just used to writing as gap filling, so we don't know what happens when X and Y combine or when this happens, and they just don't find that satisfying. So I've had to kind of uh, figure out this tacit knowledge system that exists that people find have a hard time communicating, and you just have to read. And reviewing has helped for me to kind of figure out what what they mean when they say theoretical contribution, but it's unique and it's helpful. I I, I find it a useful way of thinking. So this, uh, these terms that you're describing, consensus uh, building, consensus d destroying, consensus shifting, these aren't your terms. These are terms, standard terms of the field. Yeah. So this is a great chapter that John Hollenbeck wrote, who was an editor at one of the big management journals who just was kind of like, I read a lot of terrible arguments about why papers should matter. And here are the ones that I think are effective. And this article, it's a chapter, had a huge impact, I think, on how people write. And I, it's something, this is a, a senior colleague recommended this to me. And I, it's something I revisit a lot because it, it's just a great way for thinking about arguments and what is this even a worthy question to pursue? What does it mean for the broader whole of what we're doing, right? Because science is this collective endeavor, not just I have this one quirky question that might not matter. I feel that's, I feel that's really nice. And um, If something like that was, you know, kind of uh, an organizing principle in, let's say, social psychology, I feel that would be so, so valuable, um, because I think I think you're right. I think there's a lot of research out there that's of the huh. What would happen if I did this? Or um, kind of I, I I personally find it interesting. Um, but I think you know the questions you you might ask yourself about um, if, if it's worthwhile, consensus building, etc. Yeah, that's really nice. I, uh, I I I like your field already. Well, there there's there's some weaknesses as well. But yeah, the other thing I, I really um I like thinking about theory and there's another great piece just to this point of how to think about theory more 
um, deeply, Carl Weick, who was huge in the field, kind of envisioned what theory can be as a clock. It's hard to do this without visuals. But basically, his idea was that theory has three pieces. So it can be general, simple, or accurate. And you can only nail down two of those at once. And his idea was that bad theory tries to do all three and messes it up. So you can have what would be like a two o'clock theory, which is something that's general and accurate, which is inherently not going to be simple, and it's difficult to do. So this would be something like psychoanalytic theory, which is just like, oh, I don't know, that may or may not be true. But then you would have, say, at six o'clock, there would be a combination of simple and accurate with a trade-off of generality. And so we can think of most traditional lab experiments as falling into the six o'clock bracket. But then there is something that's simple in general, which is not going to be accurate, something like the Peter Principle, where um, people rise in an organization to the level of their incompetence. Now, this is not going to be accurate all the time, but it's making these kind of broad and simple predictions that are, yeah, general. So I, I find it a really nice way to think of what you can and can't accomplish in a theory instead of trying to bite off so much. So I have a complaint. Uh, it, it seems like OB theories often involve an unnecessary reference to some physical object that doesn't really seem to have a lot. <laughs> Wait, what, what other examples do you the have? The garbage can. Oh, shit. That's my fault. <laughs> I, <I've, laughs> it's not widely representative. <laughs> These are just the examples I happen to pick, but there's no weird fetish around objects. Because <laughs> you're the clock also, like the clock metaphor. I don't exactly know how it works here. I like the three principles. I definitely like those three. I'm like doing the arms, but you can't see anyway. I'm sort of visualizing <laughs> the yeah, clock. It works better on the video. Yeah, this is... This is so, so I, I guess I, my serious comment is like this seems aesthetically really appealing, especially coming from a field that's so effects driven and so much like look at this weird thing. Um, but I guess the the proof in the end of the method is in the results. So, do you feel that in OB there's been accumulation of useful knowledge that allows you to understand and predict in in the way that? like psych maybe doesn't have because we don't have this sort of overarching structure? Well, yes and no. Um, I think there's a bit of a, a loose coupling that happens where what I'm talking about are ideal principles. And I think when they're lived, it really truly does that. Um, but there's also a misuse of this, like with everything where people... There's a lot of, say, getting a data set and fishing around in it and finding it and like ad hoc applying some theory. So I, I think there are bad versions of this that try to create the appearance of meeting these ideals. And sometimes that can be hard to fish out. And those those aren't going to be replicable findings. Um, but again, the idea is that over time, this should accumulate some broader base of knowledge and I think that's I think it's somewhat true. But again, the, there are certainly weaknesses. And I think if the ideal was upheld, sure. But it, it just isn't always. Maybe a related question um, is well, you mentioned the word replicability. Um, and, you know, and, you know, obviously we talk about that a lot in, on, on the show. Uh, do you have a sense uh, for how OB uh, maybe specifically, or if we want to zoom out, you know, you know, B schools more generally, but maybe we'll stick to OB because that's what you know. Um, how it compares to psychology on that front, on on uh, the front of you know best practices, replicability, et cetera. 
Yeah, so this is a great question, and I think there's a massive amount of heterogeneity there. So I think some of the some business school departments are at the cutting edge of this, um, but others are lagging behind. So I think especially something like mainstream OB still isn't like when I have to do reviews for our top journals, I. I'm always super critical about this. There are still wildly underpowered studies being submitted. Basically, nothing I get at these outlets is pre-registered yet. So I, I see a massive leg in in what's happening, and I think it's it's going to hit OB eventually. It, it's hit those of us who are experimentalists. But I think there's also a little bit of hypocrisy that's been going on where I've been in certain job talk situations where more macro, not, not where I'm now, but in other places where um, there's this knee-jerk reaction against experimentalists, where there's a distrust of that, but then without recognizing that these large data sets that people are operating in, um, you can, like I've, I've myself dealt with cases where getting someone's data set, the way it's published, they did the one analysis that worked. So there's just so, there's so many degrees of freedom when you're wor working in an archival data set. Um, it, there's just so many other ways to embody researcher degrees of freedom, but there's just this kind of knee-jerk experiments are not trusted reaction in a lot of places, and I and I don't think that's necessarily fair. So you've mentioned this um, macro-micro distinction a couple times. Can you, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with this, can you clarify what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so macro would be more concerned with how, say, organizations interact with their environments. So um, how does a given organization acquire legitimacy, for instance? If everybody's starting to to do carbon offset, does that mean we do it? And does that mean we do it appropriately, for instance? Um, social networking is social network analyses would be a more meso question. Um, how do organizations link up together? How do people within those link up together? Um, whereas OB itself is more about people in groups inside of them. So the distinction is more level of analysis than anything. And the people who are doing the macro level work are are those mostly economists or sociologists or some combination? Combination, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if, um, if this is maybe a downside of having stronger theory is that you can convince yourself that because your analysis comes from this theory, therefore I don't have to do the robustness checks. Therefore, the way I did it is obviously the right way to do it. Right. Yeah. Like when you're just kind of up more upfront about being kind of like a looser discipline in terms of theory, then you have to worry more about like empirical fishing. Yeah. And yeah. guard against it more. Absolutely. Um, Barry Stah has this great article about what good theory is. And one of his big complaints is that in some of these fields, you get something that's just um, the idea that a citation is a theory. So because I've cited Marx, um, this is obviously like established theory. Some things are now just taken for granted. So it might be less questioned. Okay, we get that. The Yes, of course. Um, and and yeah, institutional theory taken for granted. But um, I think then then you see these sorts of things where there, there might be less attention to the rigor or replicability of, a, of a one given study. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you, well, you're, you, you bring up a really, uh, this is a really interesting point. Um, so I think uh, in this kind of ongoing discussion we've been having uh, about best practices, um, 
we've, you know, this has been, this, of course, a, a, an uproar about like bad methods. But then, you know, the next wave or maybe a wave or two after has been like, we also have really bad theories. But what you're suggesting is that a theory acts as a prior that then pushes the way you analyze your data. And in fact, the stronger the theory, maybe the more incentives there are to, 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 to confirm it. Yeah. And I think you get these kind of reviewing subcultures, right? And this this isn't unique to my discipline where everybody, if everybody's bought into a particular theoretical lens, they're going to support each other in the publication process. Um, they're citing each other. There's there's these own echo chambers that exist and, and that, that can get very problematic too, where it would be very difficult to try to take down certain larger theoretical perspectives, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, you know, there is some of that in psych as well, but I, I think that just because we're theoretically more fragmented, it's quite likely you're going to get a reviewer who isn't bought in to your theoretical orientation to the degree that you even have one. And thus they're going to be more critical. Not that I necessarily want to hold us up as a, you know, a shining example of <laughs> how to do research correctly. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that we've, you know, we've discovered this skepticism, which is which is very healthy. And, and I think part of that often is just being honest about um, how, you know, exploratory a lot of our work is and to therefore have to put in these guardrails that don't allow you to just do whatever. Yeah. So like, that's how I think of pre-registration, for example. Or, or owning what your work is. So I really respect and admire with ethnographers, they're often just saying, hey, I'm not trying to make a statement that this is the way the world works. I captured this really interesting thing that may turn into this potential piece of theory that somebody could then test. So they're not saying, hey, this is going to replicate everywhere every time. I've, I've documented this very interesting thing in the wild, and I would be curious to see if it happened again. And so it's, yeah, you can't do all, but you can own what your method is and its limitations. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, you know, I've actually wondered this for a while, is who decides to go to grad school in, <laughs> in, in, in OB, which sounds pejorative. Yeah, it really, could, you, uh, yeah, could, just, you could have phrased that differently. But. I could have phrased it more diplomatically. You're right. Let me try and rephrase this more diplomatically. Say that you're interested in like behavioral science broadly. Yes. You're like, where should I go to grad school? I feel that the landscape is just dominated by psychology, right? And m many undergraduates mm -hmm. probably don't even know what OB or, or maybe marketing, you know, another behavioral science discipline you might find at a business school. They, they don't even know what that is. So how did you decide that this was a thing that you wanted to do and that you wanted to go to um, to Kellogg, to the business school, rather than to a psych program? Yeah, so this this may require a, a bit of a, a backstory, if you'll, if you'll we'll, allow we'll me. We'll allow it. <laughs> okay. So I, <laughs> I actually had no idea that being a researcher was even a career. So I am a first-generation college student. I'm an only child with a single mom. I think in these settings, you have a very... Um, uh, not nuanced idea of what potential white collar jobs are. So I started my undergrad um, at Queens here in Canada, and I was a biochemistry major with the idea that I would go to med school. Because again, if, if you grow up in a working class community, that is an idea of a good profession one could have. So I went and I ended up taking psychology as an elective. And I just I fell in love with it. I didn't know this was something that people could do 
Um, and I just got completely consumed by it. I would read it for fun. And so I got involved in the lab and I just I knew I didn't want to do anything else. I just I, I love everything about it. Coming up with ideas, testing them, seeing what happens. Um, so I, I was kind of all set to apply to psych departments, but then I actually, I, I started working with someone in the business school um, as an uh, as a research assistant, and he he's amazing. His man Julian Barling, who is at Queens, he was basically like, "Hey, what if you could do the same thing, but you could get a job and make money?" And I was like, "Huh, <laughs> that that has some appeal," <laughs> but that that ultimately wasn't why I chose what I chose. I kind of just applied to people who I thought were doing interesting work and went where that took me. But the the path was open just because somebody told me that this field existed. Otherwise, I don't I don't think I would have necessarily known that this was an option. Yeah, it's amazing how much these like really consequential decisions yeah. are yeah. made on the basis of like, well, my advisor knew a dude, and so yeah, oh, yeah. Man, I, I I went so I went to grad school in, in psych at Brown. I never even heard of Brown, uh, and the only reason I went is someone I went to high school with. I wasn't even friends with, but I kind of I knew her, and I and I, I knew that she was going to Brown. I'm like, oh, if if she applied, maybe I should apply, and that was it. That was the basis of my decision. Honestly, like twenty-one-year-olds shouldn't be trusted with any decisions, but it—I I think we were lucky enough that it panned out okay. But yeah, it was totally just happenstance and curiosity. And again, I think—I don't know—I I value this. I know, like pursuing money is a taboo thing to say, but I think when you come from a background of more financial insecurity, I also had a really set of pragmatic concerns where I love psychology, but the job market is tougher and. And yes, I, I think I started with the idea that I'd be one of these people who was a psychologist in a business school, but I then absolutely fell in love with these classes on org theory and what it means. It, it just has so much explanatory power to me. So yes, I absolutely buy that someone's decision-making will be affected by the emotional state they're in. But you know what else is going to explain a lot of behavior if they're trapped inside this very rigid bureaucracy? Like, of course, these like really, really strong institutional contexts are going to have these huge effects. And there was something about that that was super compelling to me. And I think after that, um, my, my research was fundamentally shaped in a way that I wanted to approach it in this more mezzo, mid-level way that crossed levels one way or the other. Um, Rachel, would it be possible, uh, if you're not comfortable, that's cool. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more about, uh, you know, being a single, uh, sorry, um, uh, first generation college student um, and, you know, now being a professor. So kind yeah. of having an elite profession and, um, but uh, maybe having family members that don't really even know what to do. So, so what is, what is that like? It, it's very strange. I think, um, again, there, it's occasionally isolating. I think one of the things, there's been a lot of work on social class and um, academic achievement, and the focus has been on how to get people to have these achievements, but less of a discussion on something that I found, which it, it can feel really isolating when you're suddenly, um, you feel disconnected in a way from people who no longer really understand what you do or have difficulty trusting it or really getting the value of my job because I think there's there's a perspective like, oh, you didn't, I don't make a thing. I don't go to work every day and create something of tangible value. I'm like, oh, I think about ideas and it just, it sounds like a ridiculous profession. 
So, so there's a bit, a bit of a disconnect there. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a under discussed element of crossing these kind of social class barriers where th- that's been one, one difficulty of it. Um, Do you have just, any kind of, um, uh, like shortcuts, w- w- ways that you can talk to people that you grew up with in a way that you don't have to kind of get mm. into, the, into the weeds about what you do? Um, I think people get what professor is. So that's a, that's an easier one to start with. Like that's a versus explaining what, like my field is just a nightmare to explain. <laughs> like some complicated explanation of people and organizations. I don't know. But professor is something to latch on to. Um, the other thing that was honestly really hard is that the understanding that it's not like any other job. So, uh, my mom really wanted me to come home and I totally understand that. And for her, that meant, well, you just go right to U of T and you like put in a resume and someone's going to just, you'll get that job. Right. And she's like, no, this is like a, a hellish nightmare scape of difficulty 200 applications for one position and it just doesn't work like that and and there was something that's very challenging to explain about the academic job market too that it wasn't that I didn't want to come home it's just it's very challenging yeah but meanwhile I mean you're you are in Toronto yeah, yeah. so your mom probably thought you just mailed in the application and that <laughs> yes, was it, right? it worked out. <laughs> they they finally got my resume and <laughs> it really worked out <laughs> so so since we're already talking about your personal history. Um, I know, although most of our listeners probably don't, uh, that you have sort of a unique experience of having been a a high-level competitive figure skater uh, (laughs) when you were younger. So I I wonder whether you would mind telling us a little about what that was like and whether that has had any effect on, you know, how you see your work, how you see your life now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for one, it explains my contemporary love of sequence. So <laughs> if anyone was curious about that. No, I, I think skating has shaped a lot of my approach. So it was it consumed my life for all of it. I didn't go to school full time in high school. This was all I did. And I think there there are actually a lot of threads to being in the academy. One is this kind of non-rational commitment to unlikely goals. And so I, I think that thread still holds. Um, also, everybody who does this is like a maniac in some way, which is true for, for both professions. Um, and also, I, I think it really shaped the questions that I find interesting. So I feel like I'm really loading up on embarrassing stories, but I really, really struggled as a skater with performance anxiety. So before competitions, I would pass out, like just straight up fall down in sheer terror. I had a a sports psychologist for years trying to work through this stuff. But it just it it was so overwhelming to me in the moment that like feeling of anxiety was just inescapable. The the moment it was over, it was like, well, why did I mess that up so badly? The emotion's gone. And now you're confused as to why you gave up something really important to you over it. And this eventually, um, I've done some work on empathy gaps. So this idea that it's really hard to understand the impact of emotional states if you're not in them. And I think my curiosity in that fundamentally came from these experiences of being completely overwhelmed by performance anxiety. Uh, the other thing that I think skating taught me, which is very useful in science, is humility. 
So I've like I've fallen on my ass so many times in front of so many people. And I just think that's a good metaphor for for how to approach life in this field, which is just you can't take yourself too seriously. And occasional embarrassment is fine and OK. And, and I, I try to remember that. So, Rachel, I, I'm I'm I'm. I'm positive you've seen this movie, uh, I, Tanya. Have you, of course, of course. Yes. So, you know, she too had a single <laughs> yeah. m- mom um, from working class background. And she, in the movie, the, the, the skating world is painted as very, very classist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, is that, is, that, is that the case yeah. as well in Canada? Oh, for sure. It's a little bit different in Canada because there are more supports. So I would receive funding support, for instance, which is less so the case um, in the U.S. But it's still insanely expensive. And I still feel some guilt for how costly that probably was. Um, I see. So when you saw that movie and you saw Tanya's mom, you're like, I'm looking at my mom. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) If she ever listened to this and heard that comparison, she'd be very upset with me. (laughs) So I'm going to go with I'm going to go with a hard no. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, skating is a it's a it's a bizarre culture. It's very insular. It has. Um, it has a lot of it's. It's hard because I feel completely torn. I absolutely love it. I, lo- I I love this combination of artistry and athletics, but it also has this like really kind of toxic culture to it. So I I, I struggle with my commitment to it. But I I think there have been some things that I've taken away in life that have been helpful in other domains. Excellent. Uh, you you well. Should we uh, maybe uh, pause and get uh, get some more beverage? I think this uh this is a great um point to take a break and when we come back uh Rachel can detail for us the numerous factual inaccuracies in Itania. Oh, I have strong feelings about this. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter. The show's handle is at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM us. We both check that account pretty regularly. If you'd rather email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that will go to both of us. And uh, if you would like to check out our website with our back catalog, uh, we now have a custom URL. Thanks to friend of the show, David Pizarro, who got us that URL fourbeers.com will take you to our website. You can drop us a line there as well if you like. Um, Mickey, have I left anything out? 
I feel like I can't say a single bad thing now about David Pizarro ever because what a beautiful gift he gave us. Just like, you know, gave us that URL like as we were recording last episode. It was amazing. I like he just sort of snuck off and bought us a URL like live. It was incredible. So, yeah, that's right. Your uh, your hate campaign against David Pizarro has to now stop. I'm, I'm sorry to say. All right. But I can still hate on uh, Tamler Summers. Yeah, Chandler didn't get us a URL. No, fuck him, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What has he given us? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just All right. grief. Just uh, nothing but heartache. Shall we talk about uh, what we're drinking? Yes. Yeah, so we. Uh, so now we're in sync, uh, you, well, you and I. Uh, it's another beer from Mavni Alavi, uh, who got us the uh, some beer from his local uh, uh, brewery in Barrie, Ontario. Um, now, what is interesting about this beer is, you know, as with lots of things in uh, the pandemic, there are shortages of things. Uh, so this this brewer uh, started running out of labels. Um, so what I have here, and let me just describe this to you, Rachel, and tell me why this is wrong. Um, so I have a, we have a stranger who bought us beer, and all we have is a silver can with handwritten uh, on it. It, th- this beer is called Alberta Mosaic. Yeah, that's poison. That's poison. Yeah, literally in Sharpie. Um, <laughs> yes, Mickey, I still have to finish my last beer. You should definitely drink this beer. That, that's oh. a roofie colada right there. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, if you start feeling woozy, I'll be over in 15 minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Mavni, for uh, for these beers. And Rachel, what do you got for us? What are you drinking? Uh, I'm the same as before. Back to the the Kensington Brewing Company Broken Point. Very delicious. Excellent. Now, uh, this is is that a new beer? It is, of course. Excellent, excellent. A compliant who, guest. Who do you think you're talking to over here? I have the compliance of an elderly Irish man after the quarantine. Not compliance. The what, what word am I looking for? Shit. Tolerance. Tolerance. God, it's our, and maybe I don't have any tolerance. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> Cause exactly. Because I, I lose language facility. <laughs> right. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> undermining your point. Secondly, <laughs> the fact that you're trying to blame this on the quarantine is <laughs> transparent and laughable. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you knew me before the quarantine. Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on my second beer yet, just full disclosure. Uh, but uh, you know, I I will be. I I brought it out, and I'm looking forward to drinking it. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks again uh, for this donation, which is really just very kind. Um, speaking of uh, things that you can't get during the pandemic, Rachel, you were telling me earlier about a shocking Dorito <laughs> shortage. Do you, oh, yeah. do you want to explain? Yeah, I, I meant to bring this up earlier. Have you have you guys heard about the 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 Cool Ranch Doritos crisis. This is Mickey a, is shaking his head. It, no, this, Mickey, this, the <laughs> listeners can't see you. Oh no, it's just a, a mouthful of beer. This this shook me as a as a diehard Cool Ranch fan that you can no longer get in stores the Cool Ranch Doritos, and it's because uh, of supply chain management issues where they had to consolidate um, in order to get enough Doritos to grocery stores. And so what they did was they just picked the most popular fa- flavor, which was not nacho cheese. And so now you can really only get nacho cheese Doritos. And th- there's a public outcry about the lack of Cool Ranch, which I which I entirely support. But there was a wow. mystery for a while. I um, the article was quite funny. There there were people 
tweeting like, I understand this isn't the biggest problem right now, but I can't take it any longer. <laughs> and I just, it's the last I, yeah, draw. Yeah, I really admired the the commitment to Cool Ranch as a lifestyle. <laughs> to be like, I, I cannot wonder, Rachel, bear it. I wonder if you could tell me because I, I just went grocery shopping yesterday and during the pandemic, I have been like eating nonstop this old Lay's old fashioned uh, uh. barbecue and I can't find them anywhere now. It's probably um, a similar crisis. They had to get rid of that. Consolidating supply chains. Is nothing sacred, Rachel? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I thought I thought Cool Ranch Doritos were, but clearly I was sorely mistaken. So here we are. Fucking pandemic is it too is, much, it's, man. It's, 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 that's the last thing it's taken from me. And it's, Fucking bullshit. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So um, what if we should pick up a little bit and... Um, so you, you you know you kind of uh, up until now we you've been we told us a, a, a bunch of of your your backstory and then also a lot about kind of in theory the stuff you know why you went into to OB as opposed to psychology, um, but I wonder if we can like drill down a little bit and, and and you can tell us a little bit more about some of the specific projects um, uh, that you've been working on, and I wonder if we can you know. Um, uh, uh, fix a, a wrong, you know. So we we didn't we didn't uh, have you on for sacred values, uh, but that's that's one of your topics. Uh, you, you studied quite a bit, so I wonder if you can tell us, you know, uh, what what you've done in that space. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever forgive you, but I'm I'm willing to tell you about this project. So <laughs> um, this is something I've been really interested in, and it's very relevant to your conversation about what it means to say put a pride flag on a beer can. Um, I look at what happens when you place sacred values in market context, specifically what I call the instrumental use of sacred values. So this idea of using, say, equality or environmentalism or patriotism to, um, to gain a favorable reputation as a for-profit and to yield profit. And I find that what this does is that it subsequently erodes the sacredness of those values among perceivers. So it's taking something that we thought was supposed to be an end in itself, and it's now tied to this other more extrinsic motivation. So, okay, we care about diversity because it's good for the bottom line. Well, that that fundamentally changes how people think about diversity. Now, um, th this, in a way, is, contradicts a lot of work on sacred values, which has been primarily how we protect those values. So um, Tetlock's work, sacred value protection model, would suggest that anytime you see your values under threat, you double down on them. You seek to defend them. You become more committed to these values and desire to punish whoever's doing this. And what I find is particularly problematic, well... I'll, I'll avoid valence language. What what I find maybe yields these effects is that um, instrumental use does not seem that problematic to perceivers because it kind of has this win-win lens to it. So it's like, okay, it's cool. Bud Light is supporting um, gay rights. In theory, that seems like an okay thing, right? But what it's doing, it's still taking this thing that was sacred to some and is now putting it in the market domain, and, and that changes the sacredness of the value. So can I ask a, like a conceptual question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I feel like you explain this in two kind of different ways. One being that you just pair a sacred value with some sort of like secular object or communication. So like the Bud Light commercial that's like, it's great to be 
uh, LGBT, for example, just puts those two concepts together. Whereas saying, for example, um, firms should hire a more diverse workforce because it's better for profits, that's explicitly a justification of the practice in Mm -hmm. terms of this secular benefit. So those seem a little different to me. Do you think of them as different manifestations of the same thing or as different phenomena? I think of them as different manifestations of the same thing. I don't really think of it as a contagion process, which we we looked at in some of the studies. What it seems to do is instead sets a, a descriptive norm for what treatment of the value entails. So both of those cases are doing the same thing. What is the motivation for, say, Bud Light to put pride on its can? It's it's this this instrumental end to profit or to have a favorable reputation, just like making a business case for diversity is ultimately after the same thing. So I think that there are different manifestations of the same tying of a sacred value to a more instrumental end. Do you think people are explicitly making that inference in the Bud Light case or no? Well, I think that's part of what is driving the effect, right? Where maybe maybe you're not if, – if you were just like, okay, this is a completely hollow gesture that they're abusing this value, then you might see something closer to value protective effects. But I think what's problematic is that you might not register that right away or you'll see the benefit of it. And it's just – it's shifted how you think about what these values are. So – I I mean, there's probably a lot of a lot of variance in that in terms of how people read it. But I think a, a big part of what's driving the effect is what you're saying, is that it's not just explicit cheap talk. And in fact, um, in working on this manuscript, we we have a new study now where if you introduce a, a hypocrisy element, so say um, Bud Light has a this is not the study. I wish this was the study, but it's not. So suppose Bud Light has a pride can, but you find out that they have terrible treatment of um, LGBT workers, then people show these typical value protective effects. Then they'll say um, equality is more sacred than before. But in the absence of that, and you show this commitment to it, but also this profit angle, then you see these value erosion effects. Um, so, I mean, if, if for example, the, the, the Bud Light, let's stick with the Bud Light example. Um, if by them putting a, a pride flag on a can, um, changes you know a few ad- a few people's attitudes uh, about uh, being gay about about um, LGBT issues um, who who cares if it's not sacred anymore right I mean in the end of the day if you're you know you're kind of a civil rights advocate and you want greater rights for all, all people including queer people um, and this increases that like should I care that it's kind of cheapened? It's no longer, you know, a sacred thing, a special thing? Uh, this is a fantastic question. And I have two main answers. The one is that why this is problematic is that when you've shifted something into a market space, now you kind of have this flimsy commitment to it, right? So let's walk through a thought experiment where I'm telling you, this is a different example, but suppose we're, we care about equality and diversity because it's good for the bottom line. Well, what if it stops being good for the bottom line? Then you'll just get rid of it. Whereas sacred values are supposed to be this at least uh, proposed infinite commitment to something. The second thing, I think you're right. And it's been interesting talking to activists who have a similar perception where they're like, oh, we just need everybody to buy into it. So we don't care their motives. We just want companies to be more environmentally friendly. We want them to be more diverse. And we don't really care about their motivations. So I think a lot of people share that intuition. um, And I agree. It 
it's tough, right? Um, because you want more, if you care about these causes, you want more resources to go to them, but it's having this, this maybe not ideal side effect of changing how people perceive it. So I, both yes and no, essentially. I think sacredness is important if you want stable commitments to a cause, but but you also need resources for it. And what do big for-profits have but that? And CSR has generated a lot of money for these issues. So ultimately, it's hard to weigh what's better, having a ton of money from large corporations for these causes versus changing how everyday actors feel about them. I, I honestly don't have good answers to that. Can you say what CSR is? Oh, sorry. Uh, corporate social responsibility. So there is a huge trend for for profits to have branches that give back, um, largely for reputational sake. One thing that I find so interesting about this line of research is that it really seems like when people are making an argument for a, a moral position, they really seem to have the opposite intuition. In other words, that you should make the pragmatic argument. So you said already the argument about diversity being good for the bottom line. That's something I see very, like, very frequently. When there was a debate about torture, mm -hmm. people said a lot, well, torture doesn't work. And I always thought that was so weird because right. it's like, it implies that if it did, you'd be okay with it. And I feel like, you know, we should be against torture because torture is bad, not because it's ineffective, right? So... Do you have you looked at that at all? Like, why is there this strong pull towards making the pragmatic argument? This is a great question. And I think so many people have this intuition. So I um, at Kellogg, I was involved in this values based leadership course, which was essentially about all these things. So how do you exist in a for profit but care about things, basically? And a big tension. This was a, a class led by Adam Waits, and he felt tension between wanting to um, give the morals based case for things. You should care about diversity because you should. But if you're sitting in front of a room of people who are MBA students or who work at companies, you need to give them the business case or else you don't get that buy-in in the first place. So I, I actually, there, there's also something to the intuition people have, where if you're trying to sell issues in an organization, you they inherently have to be pragmatic. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a tough one. It's almost like you need to do a stage-wise thing, where to get buy-in to these large companies, you need to make the pragmatic one, but then sell it to everybody else inside as a moral issue. It's really hard because both both issues, both um, framings matter and for different reasons and for different stakeholders. That's a, that's a kind of that's a very damning thing you just said, I feel, because it, it suggests that there's only one value for business and that is money, right? Like, so it, it's all about money, period. Like you can't, a business can't have values. Uh, it can't have like ideas about how to operate in the world. I all, all has to go back to like, you know, are we going to make money off this or not? Well, um, okay. But I think that's true. And I maybe haven't, I, was, I think I mentioned this at my talk in the psych department. I was once accused of being a socialist for presenting this work, and I think it's for this reason. Uh, but I think that, yes, uh, I am a little bit cynical about the primary motivation, and it's because you need to have that primary motive to survive as an organization. So I'm somewhat sensitive to the fact that, yeah, you also have to, you need profit to not go under. So, of course, that's inherently at some point or another going to be the primary motivation. But that's different. I mean, so 
I think it's different to say, you know, this is like, this is a, a major drive or, or, yeah. or the, the main drive, really, um, to then say nothing else matters. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Um, I, I wouldn't say that for businesses, nothing else matters. And there are great cases in point, like Patagonia is something I always give in talks where they truly have taken on costly signals to live their values. So they actively tell people, don't buy more of our jackets. We'll fix them. And so to me, that's truly a values-driven organization because they're they're taking a financial hit and they're still profitable. So they're still making money, but at the same time, they've actually made active sacrifice to live up these values. And for me, that's a big distinguishing point versus cheap talk. But even the way you frame that, like you frame that as a costly signal, yeah. right? As opposed to, um, so, I mean, sure, you want to communicate that you're actually committed to this thing, but what about just being committed to it? Like, you know, framing it as a cost signal again is saying like Patagonia is doing this because in the end it's going to be better for the bottom line. Oh, no, that's not I, by costly signal. I mean it in the sense that they are taking a hit to do it, not because their end state is more profit. It, it's if you're you're truly. That's the costly part, but there's also the, there's also the signal part. Yeah. That's, right. So, well, so it's costly for them, but it's, they want as many people as possible to know that, that, that it's costly. costly yeah. For them. I mean, that who knows, right? We don't know. But the signal can be to the self or others in a lot of cases, too. So, uh, Mickey, I, I feel like one thing that you have to take into account is that not everybody is going to agree with you. And uh, money or maybe more broadly, just practical consequences are sort of a common currency that everybody cares about, right? So if you're like, you should really increase the diversity in your organization. And I'm like, you know, I don't particularly care about diversity. You're like, well, you should. And I'm, and I'm like, well, I don't. And then, then you're stuck. Whereas if you're like, well, here are five reasons that it would benefit you to care about it, then I might start to listen. And then maybe, you know, once you've gotten your foot in the door that way, then I start to value it for its own sake. Although, Rachel, your suggestion is exactly the opposite. Yeah. So we've we've done versions of this where you give people the hybrid case. So, for instance, supporting diversity because it's good for the bottom line and because we should give a shit. And people just the the market logic is so potent that any iteration that's just kind of what overwhelms. I don't know why. Maybe it's what you're saying. It's just easy to interpret, right? Like these intangibles are kind of hard to comprehend. What is it? What's the end goal of equality? What's the end goal of environmentalism? But I can really latch on to the bottom line or what that means. And maybe that's why it's what's so sticky for people. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean... There's, I think there's fundamentally a problem of like, not everybody's going to have the same moral values, right? But everybody can speak the common language of, is this good for business or bad for business? So this, the suggestion here is that over time, we should just see this like erosion of sacredness until eventually nothing is left. <laughs> is that, I mean, does it ever go in the other direction? I, I think this is what I'm saying with how we've reconciled with value protection effects, where if you can make these situations appear threatening to people, and th then they defend the values. The, the problem with a lot of instrumental use is that it's seemingly good. So I, I think if you like, if somebody is going to shoot an endangered rhino in exchange for cash, people know that's wrong, and, and you get backlash. So I think if there there's a way to raise 
sufficient alarms or threats that these might be shaping perceptions in an undesirable way. That That's one possible means of addressing that. Wait, actually, this is a, a great example of something else that I wanted to get to, which is that uh, I think often implicit in the way people talk about sacred values, researchers, I mean, is that they're bad, mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. make people irrational, right? Yeah. And they mean that people don't take deals that they should. Um, yeah. They avoid situations that could be win-win. Um, they drag out conflicts. Um, they cause uh, like polarization, negativity between groups. And I, I think the Rhino case is actually a great one. Like I'm 100% for that if that money is actually spent to protect endangered species, right? And granted, that's a big if, but let's say that money is spent effectively. I think it's much better to have a rich person pay a million dollars to shoot one and then save 10, right? Isn't this... There's a lot of... I mean, how is that debatable? There's a lot of potential issues with that argument. But I actually, I I have data on this, which um, unpublished data where... Uh, actually, we found that people who were exposed to instrumental cases were then more likely to be willing to have a conversation with somebody who was on the opposing side of the issue. So that's consistent with what you're saying about sacredness, right? It creates these intractable conflicts. So sometimes it's okay to erode sacredness, sacredness if you want to resolve a conflict or you want to not have an impasse. We We have found that after these more business cases, people will at least listen to somebody on the opposing side. Right. And I I guess the the way that like John Barron, for example, would put it is like, well, we're constantly having to make trade-offs between different values, right? That's just part of our job as a society to say no one value has infinite worth. Right. And we have to reconcile between them. Seeing values as sacred gets in the way of that. And so we would be actually better off if we all took more of a kind of secular or pragmatic approach to these um, to these values. But it, it seems like you don't agree with that. Well, I d- what, what's the end? What is the end life there? So we're just are we roaming around consequentialists or what? I think if you ask John Barron, yeah, that's like that's how we should make policy. I don't know if he like would want people individually to be consequentialist, but I think he would say policy should be made on a consequentialist basis. Yeah, I just I, I think it gets tough when your commitments become so tied to ends because those ends are constantly roaming, right? Where if if we're a firm and we care about equality, but that changes one quarter to the next, whether that's a good idea. What does that mean? Like you're going to abandon and then rejoin a goal in in a weird cyclical fashion? Like I, I think there are some things that it's it's good to just say, hey, this is a thing we ought to do, so let's do it. In practice, do you think that the commitments are ever that loose? Because they they there's still a, like a pretense of holding this as moral, right? Like I think even somebody who makes the case strongly that diversity is good for the bottom line, if you're like, so then you're saying that if it weren't, it should just all be white dudes, they would, you know, they wouldn't be on board with that, right? So this erosion is more subtle than that. Yeah. I I mean, they wouldn't say that explicitly. But implicitly in their behavior, they might be more willing to tolerate it or something. Yeah. I just, I think it gets, when you get into means ends relationships, if if you're somebody who really cares about these social issues, that's not an ideal. 
So are, according to this framework, are all are all values, are all ideals sacred? I mean, can't you have a value like, okay, I, I, I believe diversity is a good thing, regardless of, you know, whether it's good or bad for, for a company's bottom line. It's something I value. Is it a sacred value? Is it something that, like, um, I couldn't compromise on? I don't think so, at least not for me personally. Um, it's still a value of mine. Yeah, so um, we, we're pretty consistent with the literature here where it's it's an expressed commitment. So people are at least, at least claiming that they wouldn't compromise on these values. They're really averse to material trade-offs when it comes to these values. Uh, like you all saying about Baron's perspective, is that absolutely true? I don't think so. But these are at least proclaimed commitments. Um, but if you force people into these situations, I do I do think they'll bend on them. So here's a sort of a cynical alternative that I wonder whether you've considered. <laughs> if we think about these expressions of sacred values as like not being literal, but a, as some sort of signal, is it possible that if you're like, well, if Budweiser really loves like LGBT rights, that's just no longer cool? And I'm yeah. like less motivated to sort of credential by saying like, I really think that this value should be seen as sacred. Yeah, so you're saying the 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 source matters. So if it's um well, Right. So seeing seeing a corporation espouse it diminishes its value as like a, a signal about your own mm, moral worth. Right. I mean that's very possible, right? Where uh, I mean, this is consistent with the literature where a big part of sacredness is you're signaling I understand this moral community and I'm a part of it. So if if that no longer has meaning, then then why would you do it? Yeah, it's like, you know, I like the band as long as they're not on yeah. major label. And yeah. <laughs> it's no yeah. longer, you know, Green Day is no longer cool, man. Sacredness is the ultimate hipster move. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I wonder if we could uh, shift gears a little um, and, uh, and talk about uh, another of your lines of research on radicalization. Yeah. Uh, now, I must admit, I, I know very little, I actually know zero about your research in this area. So uh, please educate me and, and our listeners. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, this is brand new research that I'm very excited about, which um, stems from this question of how, how do you broach taboo topics with someone in the first place? So suppose this is this is not a great example. I need to find a new one. But suppose I'm a white supremacist and I want to find other people who would either be swayed in my direction or would agree with me. That's, that's a very difficult ask, right? Because you have to approach someone that you don't really know what their preferences are and, and figure it out. So... We've been looking at the, the general range of approaches that people have for approaching taboo topics and have thus far dug into a lot of qualitative data. So looking at just asking people, how would you approach someone to buy drugs, for instance, or how would you ask your partner about being in an open relationship and these sorts of things? So we've come up with a typology of the general responses that, that people make and then matching them to a new batch of participants and asking, well, what does this person want and what do you think of them? And it turns out people are quite bad at this. It's a, it's a really hard thing to navigate where people either really overshoot and are, are super direct, which leads to a lot of people to, to dislike them, or they're too indirect and use language that's so obtuse that nobody understands. So like very weird references, like 
calling weed tree or something where nobody really gets it, but you're not penalized for it. So it's this risk regulation strategy of how you approach taboo topics that nobody's nailing. Um, as the next stage, we're really curious in terms of because there are people that really do this well in the real world, right, where there are seemingly neutral targets that suddenly become really into extreme views. So we're now curious which of these strategies that they're using, what's effective, what makes a particular YouTube channel suddenly make someone way more extreme in their racial views, What what's happening there. Um, this is still a very early stage, but 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 I find this question very fascinating of of how how do you even broach this in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I'm curious. Like it, it seems like there is. First of all, I mean, this is such an interesting topic, and and one that I've been kind of thinking about myself more recently. Now that we're in this, in my view, sort of ambiguous phase with uh, COVID and isolation. I have a COVID so like, dating study. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. like, let's say that you're, you know, on the apps during COVID yeah. and you're like, well, I would like this person to maybe come over and maybe they would like to come over, but I don't want to be rejected by them in case that's not yeah. true. And so like, how do I feel that out? Right. And so there it's like the other person's preferences are unknown to mm -hmm. you and you need to, in some like deniable or subtle way, kind of figure out what they are or give them license to express them somehow, which seems a little different from I'm a white supremacist. Yeah. I know that you're not, but I'm trying to draw you in in a way. Right. Yeah. Does that seem like a different dynamic? Sort of. But also with the white supremacist case, someone might have like a, a nugget of an under, underlying belief that you can exploit. So mm -hmm. I think the underlying theme is like uncertain preferences that you're trying to suss out where you first have to, to fish out a message. Um, actually, the, the, it's funny with the, the COVID dating study that we did, the one that I thought would work best in terms of both being subtle, uh, but getting the message across was the one to get a lot of backlash, which was to be like, hey, what do you think of people who are meeting up? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. That's my intuition. Yeah, but right? it, it, like, I think it's just too transparent and people know uh, what you're after. Yeah. But that, like, yeah. that was my running hypothesis that that would be the most effective one. Um, and right. it, it just turns out that what so far in our data, we need more. This is again, this is super early stage. So take this all with a grain of salt. But um, what we're finding is it just like really matters what people's priors are. So if I want to meet up in person, I really actually prefer the super direct person who's like, hey, you want to bang versus like if I don't have that prior, I prefer the really indirect route, which is so obtuse that I don't even know what you're getting at. So these middle range approaches are actually really not uh, well received. And, and I came into this project thinking that that would be the way to go. Yeah, that's so funny. I had this strong intuition that yeah. that's exactly what you should do. It's like, you know, I heard so-and-so are in an open relationship. Yeah. What do yeah. you think about that? Me too. And it's like a big category that emerges when we ask people what they do in these situations. Everyone says this is a good idea. And I too thought it would be a good idea. But part like the people you expose these messages to are just hip to it, I think. Uh, right. Yeah. It, which right. is the same with the weed study where we'd, if there would be like, hey, did you hear that marijuana has been legalized in our state? And they would just be like, OK, <laughs> I, get, I get what you're after. So, All right. I, yeah. Rachel, I want to hear more about this weed study. The weed study? OK. So, the <laughs> so this one. We did an elaborate. It's, it's a topic that I find endlessly <laughs> yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And also, for me to actually, now it's different because it's legal and yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But 
pre-legality, yeah. th- there was a code like, yeah. are they, are they wise? Are they, you know, are they down or not? Um, funny story before I answer is like for about, I think like a few months, um, Actually, I was about to expose someone, so I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> there was someone who was so clearly a weed head um, now, but like for a few months, I was like, I don't know, I think yes, but like, I'm not sure. And it just took us like both being offered at the same time weed and we're like, uh, oh, okay. So wait, um, what, what cues were you using to determine this? You're, you're thinking that they were. That they were into it? Yeah. Well, uh, with weed, there's so many tells. I mean, like how you dress, what music you're into, uh, how you well, act. Well, they're like really into fish or something. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> fish, deadheads. Uh, they have a lot of black lights in their apartment. Um, they're always playing hacky sack. <laughs> they, yeah. they had a slag line. <laughs> so right, do they have intense bo? Uh, I mean, there are there are tells. You're talking about like the, but here's the thing, which is why I find this problem so interesting, is that you're talking about like the extremes of a subculture, right? Where those are like people who are super into it, but there's so many people who smoke weed who who don't slackline in Trinity Bellwoods, and you might might not know, <laughs> like that that yeah the, for those folks that makes sense, but for everybody else it's really hard to suss out. So I think that's where it gets complicated. So okay, so tell me, I want to hear about the study. Oh yeah, so um, this was a yoke yoke study where we first asked people basically how you would approach. Um, somebody to buy drugs. And then we followed up and matched participants' responses to that. They, they rated how risky they thought their approach was and then matched them to a new batch of participants and asked, hey, like, what does this person want? What do you think of this person? And then how risky do you think this was? And just found, like, complete misalignment. So, again, just, like, two the people are really at these poles where they're just either super direct or super indirect, and nobody knows what's happening. So people turn out to be quite bad at this. But, again, um, further further unpacking is very necessary, but, but I find the, the question endlessly fascinating. So it sounds like the one piece of uh, knowledge that our listeners can use is if you'd like somebody to come over and have sex with you during COVID, just ask explicitly. Yeah, because you'll find out. They'll either be outraged. And again, like this works with strangers. If you don't want to see them, they'll just be pissed off and tell you no. Or if they're into it, they'll be into it. But these these mid-range approaches that I thought would be the most effective are the worst. So I, I found that fascinating and super counterintuitive to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely not what I would have expected. So these... Projects that we've talked about, they're like, they're they're very different, obviously, in in terms of topic, um, and yet they have this kind of nice combination of like, they're about something in the world that you can sort of instantly recognize once you hear the idea, but there's also kind of a theoretical depth to like, uh, there is a really interesting psychology there that that I think we ought to be able to understand. And I, I wonder if there's like something that you do like some sort of process that you have to, to come up with ideas or decide what's worth pursuing? Or is this just sort of like accidental, you know, whatever happens to pan out or um, maybe you end up chatting with a collaborator and you're like, Oh, we should do this. Um, well, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think of it like the, the famous example of the Supreme court ruling on porn where I just, I know it when I see it. And it, I feel like to me, it's just this total system one thing of that seems interesting to me. 
And for better or worse, I don't really have a super pragmatic approach on what I do. It's just what is fascinating. Um, I, I One of the benefits, I think, I'll, I'll say, of the business school is that I, I always have this kind of lens in my mind of could I talk to an economist and a sociologist about this question and they wouldn't find it cute? And that's really important to me. Like, I, I don't. I don't want to be cute. And I think that that being in an interdisciplinary area has really helped me. So if anything, I pursue things I find fascinating and that would connect to, to theory. I care a lot about theory. But with this lens on, would people not in my specific niche world care about this too? So that's a, that's an interesting heuristic. Uh, uh, so, you know, another, you know, you, you don't want your research to be perceived as cute by, uh, by your colleagues. Another word could be sexy, right? Um, and that's kind of funny because, of course, those are typically seen as positive. Um, but but I, I think, you know, both you all and I understand what you mean. But maybe for our listeners, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for something to be cute or sexy in, 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 in let's say, psych or psych-adjacent research? I, okay, I have, um, I have a, I guess I, maybe this is, again, personal issues, but I have a real aversion to flashiness. I like substance. I, I want it to feel rooted in something. And I think maybe this is my aversion. Okay. This is really inarticulate, so bear with me. But I think there are two two sides of a coin to the business school. One, I think it's great to be attuned to the public. I think it's – I found it very beneficial to think about what people might care about. But the flip of that is I also don't want to pursue research that I could write up in a pop press piece. I don't think that that's a great pursuit of knowledge. Like, I want to find truth. Ultimately, why else do this if you're not interested in just finding out something that approximates truth about humans? And so I think my aversion to that is to avoid doing something that seems super flashy. And I, I don't know what the bounds of that are. Um I have, I have really problems with like construct proliferation, which I think is an issue sometimes in our field where we'll suddenly rebrand concepts in a flashier way. And I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I want I to do things that matter, but I also want them to have meat or substance to them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That totally makes sense. And I must admit, uh, I find what you're saying refreshing because I have a stereotype of, you know, people in the business school. Um, and you said, you said, for example, you don't want to, uh, have your work appear in a, you know, a, a pop kind of like a, an op-ed or whatever, some sort of a magazine article. Um, and my stereotype is like, that's really valued in business schools. Like those, those op-eds, those kind of uh, magazine articles, but you're kind of working against that. Uh, well, I, I don't always make the best pragmatic decisions <laughs> that's clear in my life but um also I, I it's not that i would be upset if that would happen i just don't want to ever get into a headspace where i pursue something because i think that's the end state of it you know if something incidentally happens to be interesting that's very cool and i'm excited about that but i also again this humility thing where i i often don't know what i can conclude from a single paper I feel like there's some irresponsibility involved sometimes in just being like, hey, here's a sexy takeaway from these like four vignette studies that I ran. And so I, I don't know. I guess I often feel some discomfort around that. I applaud you for it. That's I, I again, like again, my stereotype is 
the opposite sometimes happens in business schools where the headline is what people imagine. That's the end. Yeah. Rachel, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Thank you. And I, I think I'm on a path to forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs>